Welcome to Washington Today on C-SPAN Radio for Wednesday, January 17, 2024. President Joe Biden meets with the bipartisan House and Senate leadership to talk about his national security supplemental spending request, more than $100 billion for aid to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, which has been hung up in Congress over Republicans' insistence the U.S. border security also be part of the bill. So far, there's not been a deal that all sides can agree to, but the principals say they're close. A bill to extend temporary government spending to avoid a shutdown Friday night at midnight advances in the Senate, and House Speaker Mike Johnson is questioned today about the conservative House Republicans who have spoken out against it. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau proposes a rule that would limit bank overdraft fees to as little as $3. U.S. Supreme Court hears oral arguments in two cases whose decisions could see major changes in the leeway that courts give federal agencies when they interpret and enforce laws, what's called the Chevron deference after a 1984 precedent. We'll talk about it with political reporter Alex Guillen. Biden administration announces it is relisting Yemen's Houthi rebels as a global terrorist group in response to their attacks on commercial shipping in the Red Sea and Gulf of Aden. And John Kerry, the special presidential envoy for climate, talks about his plans to leave that position in the Biden administration. CBS News has an article that previewed today's meeting at the White House. It reads President Biden is set to meet with congressional leaders on Wednesday afternoon as a months-long dispute over border security and aid for Ukraine makes its way to the White House. The high-stakes meeting is set to focus on what the White House calls the critical importance of the president's supplemental funding request, which includes money for Ukraine, Israel, border security, and more. For months, the spending package has been up in the air after congressional Republicans made their backing contingent on the Ukraine aid being tied to enhanced border security measures and immigration policy changes. Senate negotiators aimed at forging a compromise on immigration issues dragged through the holidays and into the new year. That was from CBS News previewing the meeting. After the meeting in the White House driveway, the congressional leader spoke to reporters. First, House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican from Louisiana. Thank you all for for being here. We had a uh, productive meeting, I think, House and Senate leaders. Uh, The president was very forthright. I told the president what I have been saying for many months, and that is that we must have change at the border, substantive policy change. We documented 64 instances where the president took executive action or his agencies took took action to create the current catastrophe that we have at the border. It is a national security and a humanitarian catastrophe. And I articulated that to the president in the meeting now. We understand that there's concern about uh, the safety, security, sovereignty of Ukraine, but the American people have those same concerns about our own domestic sovereignty and our safety and our security. We, We have talked about the necessary elements to solve this problem. We, we passed our bill, and it has critical elements. It's a restore, restoration of the Remain in Mexico policy. It is the end of catch and release. It is reform to the broken uh, asylum and parole systems. Uh, we're not insistent upon a particular name of a, of a piece of legislation, but we are insistent that the elements have to be meaningful. The House is ready to act, but the legislation has to solve the problem, and that, that's the critical point. Uh, we understand the necessity about Ukraine funding, and we want to say that the status quo is unacceptable. We need the commander-in-chief of this country, the president of the United States, to, to show strength on the world stage and not weakness. We cannot continue with the current status quo. We understand the importance of what's been needed, but when I met with President Zelensky just last month, right before Christmas, he said that the necessary ingredient 
is the proper weapons systems that they need. Um, there, there are certain things that are, that are needed to ensure that they can prevail. We need the questions answered about the, the strategy, about the end game, and about the accountability for the precious treasure of the American people. We understand that all these things are important, but we must insist, we must insist that the border be the top priority. I, I think we have some consensus around that table. Everyone understands the urgency of that, and we're going to continue to press for it. I want to thank my colleagues here, the chairman of our committees of jurisdiction, for being here, and, and thank uh, everyone for the time today. Thank well, you. Mr. Speaker, did you hear anything from the president that makes you change your calculus in these negotiations? House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican from Louisiana, flanked, as he said, by some of the committee chairs in the House. The White House released a list of participants at today's meeting, and there were 18 members in all from the House and Senate leadership positions and committee leadership. The Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer, Democrat from New York, and the House Minority Leader, Hakeem Jeffries, Democrat from New York, also came out and spoke to reporters after today's meeting. Well, thank you very much. It was a very good meeting and a very positive meeting. There was a large amount of agreement around the table that we must do Ukraine and we must do border. There was tremendous focus on Ukraine and an understanding that if we don't come to Ukraine's aid, that the consequences for America around the globe would be nothing short of devastating. And within a year, we would be on our back foot doing all kinds of things that we that we wouldn't want to do, that it was essential, essential, and there was Democratic and Republican agreement that it was essential we help Ukraine. We also talked about the border and how it's so important to deal with the border. The president himself said over and over again that he is willing to make, uh, to move forward on border. And so we said we have to do both. There were a couple of people in the room who said, let's do border first. We said we have to do both together. In the Senate, and let me make one more point. The only way we will do border and Ukraine, or even either of them, is bipartisan. You cannot, cannot do things with one party in a divided Congress. And so anyone who says, any party that says do it my way or no way, we're not going to get anything done. And I think there was broad agreement in the room that we had to do this in a bipartisan way. Speaking in the Senate, we are making really good progress. I am more optimistic now that we can come to an agreement on border and Ukraine in one package, along with aid to Israel, along with humanitarian aid for the Palestinians in Gaza, and along with helping us Indochina. I am more optimistic than ever before that we'd come to an agreement. I put the chances a little bit greater than half now, and that's the first time I can say that. And so we hope to fund the government this week. And then if we can come to an agreement, we haven't come to an agreement yet in the Senate, move very quickly uh, to, on the uh, supplemental uh, very shortly thereafter. What was the president's nope. response? Yeah. Thank you, Leader Schumer. Uh, I'm thankful to President Biden for convening the legislative leadership from both the House and the Senate. It was a very positive, forward-looking, candid discussion about the issues of importance to the American people. First and foremost, that funding the Ukrainian war effort is in America's national security interests. And it's important that we sustain the effort, not simply just for the good of the Ukrainian people, though they are allies of the United States, and that's incredibly important, but it is urgently necessary that we continue to support the Ukrainian effort 
for the good of the free world, for the good of democracy, and for the good of America's national security interests. And there was broad agreement on that point. As Leader Schumer has indicated, there was also an openness to, in a bipartisan way, addressing the situation at the border. It has to be bipartisan. It has to be reasonable. It has to be effective. It has to be consistent with American values. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Any closer to an agreement, sir? The House Democratic leader, the minority leader, Hakeem Jeffries, and the Senate majority leader, Democrat as well, Chuck Schumer, speaking in the White House driveway after that meeting with President Biden and the leadership of the House and Senate bipartisan, also committee leadership bipartisan, invited. And now to government funding. This from State's Newsroom. The U.S. Senate took a broadly bipartisan vote Tuesday to advance a short-term spending bill, but both chambers of Congress must approve the legislation before a Friday funding deadline to avoid a partial government shutdown. The 68-13 to 13 procedural vote moves the bill forward towards the final vote in the Senate in the coming days, though without a time agreement, that vote could slip until next week. The U.S. House will have to vote to approve the bill after the Senate passes it. That chamber likely has the votes to clear the bill for President Joe Biden's signature, despite frustration from far-right lawmakers about government spending. The stopgap bill, sometimes called the Continuing Resolution, or CR, marks the third time this fiscal year Lawmakers have leaned on this type of funding measure to extend their deadline for passing the dozen annual government spending bills. That reporting from State's Newsroom. Back to Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. He gave a status report earlier on the Senate floor. Last night, the Senate took an important step towards passing a temporary extension of government funding and avoiding an unnecessary government shutdown. We had a strong bipartisan vote last night with 68 members in favor of moving forward with the CR. And that number would have been higher were it not for weather delays. It's a clear signal that majorities in both parties in the Senate want to pass this funding extension as quickly as we can. Now, if both sides continue working in good faith, we can have the CR passed by tomorrow. If both sides continue working in good faith, we can avoid a shutdown without last-minute drama or needless anxiety for so many Americans. There's every reason in the world to make this an easy, uncomplicated, and drama-free process. I urge my colleagues on both sides of the aisle to do just that, work in good faith. We're willing to cooperate, as always, with the other side to keep this process moving. But Republican members need to be realistic and practical about how much time we have left before the shutdown deadline. What the Senate cannot do right now is mimic the chaos in the House. We're a vocal minority of hard-right rabble-rousers want to bully their way into making a shutdown happen. Amazingly, the hard-right thinks preventing a shutdown is somehow, quote, a surrender, as the House Freedom Caucus suggested a few days ago. Mr. President, only in the bizarre world of the hard-right is it a surrender to keep the government open. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on the Senate floor Wednesday morning. That procedural vote... Tuesday, again, he mentioned it, 68 to 13, the 13 no votes all coming from Republicans. If and when the CR passes the Senate, it will go to the House, where Speaker Mike Johnson is facing some critics on the bill and the process from his own party. He was asked about it at a morning news conference. 
question for you on this CR here. Are you confident that you'll be able to get more than half of the conference on board here? Because we keep hearing that there's a lot of people who are upset that you agreed to the top line, agreed to a CR when you said you weren't going to do another CR, yet we're doing another CR. Yeah, I, I wanted uh, no more uh, CRs until we could move this process forward. We've, we've achieved that. We uh, forged forward. We got the top line agreement. And in spite of what people are saying on both sides, this is a better agreement than we had. We, we uh, Because of the adjustments that were made to the top line of 1.59, there was additional money that was spent. So we went in and carved it up. We got $16 billion in real cuts out of the IRS slush fund and the COVID slush fund, the Biden administration. Uh, was so jealously guarding and protecting, and that's that's an important improvement. We we changed some of the gimmicks in those side deals, as they're called, into real savings for the American people. So, having gotten the top line agreement now, this uh, allows us to go forward for the appropriators on both sides, both chambers, to work together, and uh, and come up with the final bill. But it doesn't it's, seem like some. Wait a minute, let me finish. And this is an important thing for us because it allows us to fight for our policy changes, our policy writers, in those spending bills. And it takes time to do that. And so the reason we need just a little bit more time on the calendar is to allow that process to play out. This is what the American people expect and deserve. This is the way the law is supposed to work, where individual appropriations bills and not one big massive omnibus spending bill are, are duly negotiated and amended and, and, and priorities fought for, and that's what we're doing. We just need a little more time on the calendar to do but it, why, that, that's why where we are. Some, but why aren't some of those conservatives convinced of this? I mean, their, their criticism is pretty Well, I just let the, the a conference meeting where we talked about this in detail, and, and uh, everyone understands the reality of where we are. Um, right now, as, as it sits, the House Republicans have uh, the second smallest majority in history. We have uh, 218 right now, the 213 on the other side, and beginning next Monday, we'll be at 217. Um, literally the smallest uh, Republican majority in the history of the Congress and the second smallest of all time, rivaled only by the 65th Congress in 1917 uh, during World War I before women had the right to vote. The Democrats had a, a, a slightly smaller uh, uh, a smaller margin than us. but um, So that's the reality where we are. We're not going to get everything that we want, but we're going to stick to our uh, core conservative <coughs> principles. We're going to advance fiscal stewardship. I regard this as a down payment on a real reform that we're going to do in the budgeting process and with the budget going forward, and I think much, much brighter days are ahead. House Speaker Mike Johnson, Republican from Louisiana, at a news conference. Wall Street today, the Dow down 94, NASDAQ down 88, S&P down 26. From Associated Press, the cost to overdraw a bank account could drop to as little as $3 under a proposal announced by the White House. The latest effort by the Biden administration to combat fees, it says, poses an unnecessary burden on American consumers, particularly those living paycheck to paycheck. Under the proposed rule, banks could only charge customers what it would cost them to break even on providing overdraft services. This would require banks to show the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or CFPB, the cost of running their overdraft services a task few banks would want to handle. Alternatively, banks could use a benchmark fee that would apply across all affected financial institutions. That article from Associated Press. The CFPB director, Rohit Chopra, spoke about this proposed rule in a video posted by the group More Perfect Union. In the past few years, we've recovered hundreds of millions of dollars in illegally obtained overdraft fees. We cannot be continuing to chase misconduct and crime. We've got to fix this market. Our proposed rule will really help to rein in the worst junk fee abuses in banking. 
How many people generally do you estimate are often impacted by overdraft fees? A little less than one in five families um, are hit with overdraft fees. And an overdraft occurs when you may not have enough money in your account. Overdraft started as an occasional convenience service when you mailed a paper check and it landed when you didn't have enough money. But over time, it became a huge profit generator. And now we see that overdraft fees are frequently more than the purchase that you're making. It led to a bigger and bigger multi-billion dollar overdraft business for the banks. Rohit Chopra directs the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, part of a video posted by the group More Perfect Union. He says proposed rule would apply to insured financial institutions with more than $10 billion in assets, and that's covering about 175 of the largest in the country. Republican Congressman Patrick McHenry of North Carolina, chair of the Financial Services Committee, and Andy Barr of Kentucky, chair of the Subcommittee on Financial Institutions and Monetary Policy, putting out a joint statement that reads, the Biden administration's attempts to mandate one-size-fits-all consumer financial products and services diminish financial inclusion, limit consumer choice, stifle innovation, and ultimately raise the cost of banking for all consumers. This proposed rule will further reduce access to the short-term liquidity products that millions of Americans rely on to help the make ends meet. We urge the CFPB to withdraw this misguided proposal that harms the very consumers the agency was created to protect. The joint statement from two Republican members of Congress, Patrick McHenry and Andy Barr. This is Washington Today. And now to the Supreme Court cases today. Reuters puts it this way, the court on Wednesday appeared divided over a bid to further limit the regulatory powers of federal agencies in a dispute involving a government-run program to monitor for overfishing of herring off New England's coast. The justices were hearing arguments and appeals by two fishing companies of lower court rulings allowing the National Marine Fisheries Service to require commercial fishermen to help fund the program. The companies, led by New Jersey-based Loper Bright Enterprises and Rhode Island-based Relentless Incorporated, have argued that Congress did not authorize the agency, part of the U.S. Commerce Department, to establish the program. The companies have asked the court, with its 6-3 conservative majority, to rein in or overturn a precedent established in 1984 that calls for judges to defer to federal agency interpretation of U.S. laws deemed to be ambiguous, a doctrine called Chevron deference. That was the Reuters article today. Here is part of the oral argument. Justice Brett Kavanaugh questioning the U.S. Solicitor General Elizabeth Prelogger. You say don't overrule Chevron because it would be a shock to the system. But the reality of how this works is Chevron itself ushers in shocks to the system every four or eight years when a new administration comes in, whether it's communications law or securities law or competition law or environmental law, and goes from pillar to post. So like Professor Pierce wrote, and he had been a fan of Chevron. Now he's not because he says it's a source of extreme instability in the law. That's his, his phrase. And it just seems like you just pay attention to what happens when a new administration comes in at EPA, at SEC, at FTC, uh, you name it. Uh, It's just massive change. That is at war with reliance. That is not stability. And so I think to hold up stability and reliance is a little tough given just watching how it operates every four years. 
Well, let me give you a couple of different reactions to that. I think that that is a small sliver of cases or circumstances. And in the mine run case involving agency regulations, agencies themselves build on those regulations as a foundation. There's no evidence that agencies are out there flip-flopping left and right or doing so on a whim. And it brings me to the important point that to do I don't think they're, I'm sorry to interrupt and I'll no. let you finish, but I don't think they're doing it on a whim. I think they're doing it because they have disagreement with the policy of the prior administration and they're using uh, what Chevron gives them and what they can't get through Congress to do it themselves, self-help, and to do it themselves unilaterally, which is completely inconsistent with bicameralism and presentment to get your policy objectives enacted into law. But Justice Kavanaugh, the premise I think that's embedded in that question is the idea that Congress had spoken to that issue. And in a circumstance where Congress didn't resolve it, and in fact wanted the agency to have flexibility and a range of options, there's nothing inherently problematic or incompatible with our system of government to recognize that agencies can carry out those directives. Elizabeth Prelogger is U.S. Solicitor General, questioned by Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh in the first of two cases involving this Chevron deference issue. Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson asked about the potential consequences of overturning Chevron with the questions to the attorney for one of the fishing companies, Roman Martinez. Mr. Martinez, what, what I'm stuck on is what seems to be an assumption in your argument that every question posed uh, with respect to interpreting a statute is a legal one. I see Chevron as doing the very important work of helping courts stay away from policy making. And so I'd, I'd like for you to sort of um, think of it through that lens and help me understand why, if we do away with Chevron's framework, we won't have a problem of courts actually making a policy decision. So Justice Kagan gave you a number of examples. And I think the reason why those examples are hard or why they're ambiguous or whatever is because at bottom, they're not asking legal questions. They're asking policy questions. How is it that stat, uh, you know, stationary source is to be defined? That's not really a legal question. I mean, there could be several reasonable ways of interpreting that. And at the end of the day, I think uh, the way I've been thinking about Chevron is Congress has given that policy choice to the agency. And my concern is that if we take away something like Chevron, the court will then suddenly become a policymaker by majority rule or not, making policy determinations. So how can we avoid that? So we agree, obviously, that the courts should not be in the business of policymaking. And I think the whole enterprise of statutory interpretation, when properly understood, is, is designed to take courts out of policymaking. Supreme Court Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson questioning attorney Roman Martinez. An article at Politico.com begins, the Supreme Court has been chiseling away at the administrative state for years. Now it may be poised to take a giant chunk of power away from federal regulators. And joining us now is one of the reporters on that article, Alex Guillen, who covers energy and environment issues for Politico. Welcome. From what you heard today, are there five justices prepared to overturn the Chevron deference precedent? It definitely looks like there are five, maybe six votes to do something to Chevron. Um, I don't know if it'll be overturned entirely or if they'll come up with a new, more restricted test. Um, But the conservative majority definitely seems uh, interested in finally 
doing something about um, this doctrine, which has become um, sort of a, a major target for many conservative legal thinkers over the past 10 years. From the questioning, how are they attacking the deference to maybe make those changes? So there was a lot of discussion about whether or not um, judges had been giving up um, their constitutional duty to decide um, what the law is. Uh, Chevron deference, of course, requires judges to um, defer to agencies' reasonable interpretations of ambiguous statutes. Um, And so there were a lot of questions about whether or not um, uh, the judiciary really should be letting agencies do that. Um, so uh, we heard from a number of conservative justices sort of criticisms on that front. Um, they questioned the idea that this doctrine provides um, some set of certainty because, um, as so, several of them pointed out, um, every time the White House changes hands between parties, uh, which we've seen a number of times in recent years, uh, those agencies start interpreting laws uh, you know, in, in almost every case in a diametrically opposite way. Um, so uh, we definitely saw a lot of questions uh, from the justices on that front. You also posted right in the middle of the argument today at the Supreme Court, everyone is arguing about a precise definition of ambiguity. Irony abounds. What did you mean? Indeed. Uh, there are a lot of questions about what is an ambiguous statute, uh, and that includes if a statute is silent about something, is that ambiguity or uh, or not? And so uh both sides are sort of pointing to different lower courts where there are judges who um, over a, a 15, 20 year time on the bench have never um, found ambiguity in a statute. And there are lots of judges that have. Um, and the idea that um, the judges that have never found ambiguity in a statute simply have never gotten a case like that is um, difficult to, to stomach. So uh, it was sort of ironic that everyone was going back and forth about what ambiguity means um, and, and demanding a precise definition. Um, and uh, we'll see what the Supreme Court comes up with, but they do seem poised to um, create a new test or, or uh, free judges to act uh, more freely. We're talking with reporter Alex Ginn from Politico. This is sort of lawyerly speak, Chevron deference referring to a case from so many years ago. If you had to explain to the average American if they were to change this standard, what would it mean for how agencies make and enforce regulations that affect them? Yeah, so this law, and it's called Chevron deference because that's the 1984 case in which it was articulated and involved um, an environmental re- regulation at EPA. But don't let the name fool you. Chevron deference has been applied to virtually every policy area that the federal government deals in, um, including, as one justice pointed out today, uh, very often, in individual cases involving things like social security and immigration. Um, and so it's not necessarily just major agency rulemaking that comes down to um, cases involving a single person. Uh, but what would happen if it was overturned is it would make it significantly harder for agencies to defend um, certain, at least certain types of regulations. Um, it means uh, that judges would be um, more available to decide if an agency pick the best possible interpretation versus merely a reasonable one of a law. And um, without the requirement that they uh, defer to a reasonable interpretation, um, judges would be much more free in many cases um, to strike down regulations or at least parts of regulations if they feel that they weren't the best possible interpretation of the law. So um, in, in reality, I think that would hit Democratic administrations like Joe Biden's 
um, a little bit harder than it probably would Republicans. Certainly any president sort of has relied on this um, precedent to defend their actions. But um, because Democrats in particular have been um, using it uh, for aggressive agency actions in areas like climate change, um, and healthcare, uh, and and any number of other areas when Congress uh, has failed to act and uh, been deadlocked in recent years, um, it would hit them harder for sure. And when might we expect a decision on today's cases? Uh, certainly by the end of June. Um, that's when the court wraps up its term and, and releases all of its opinions. It could be a little earlier than that, um, but this is uh, a very landmark case. This is going to be something that will um, reshape and redefine the judiciary. So I would not expect uh, it would it would not shock me if it came out in very late June um, as one of the their last opinions of the term. Alex Ginn is an energy and environment reporter for Politico. Find his articles at politico.com and on X, formerly Twitter, at Alex Ginn. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we have the full audio of the oral argument of today's Supreme Court cases at our video library. The court only releases audio. It's cspan.org. Washington Today continues in a moment. Hi, this is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. I'd like to introduce you to one of the producers here at C-SPAN, my colleague, Sean. Thanks, Rachel. If you're a fan of Washington Today, we think you'll also like our evening newsletter, Word for Word, which brings you a recap of the day's most important political and policy events delivered right to your inbox. Read about what happened on Capitol Hill and at the White House and watch video highlights featuring the day's newsmakers. Hear them word for word. Join our community of informed listeners and viewers. Head over to cspan.org slash connect and subscribe to Word for Word today. Thanks for listening and staying connected with Word for Word. Subscribe now at cspan.org slash connect. Thank you. Welcome back to Washington Today, available as a podcast on the free C-SPAN Now mobile app and wherever you find your podcasts. From CNN, the Biden administration on Wednesday redesignated the Houthis as a specially designated global terrorist, SDGT entity, amid continued attacks by the Yemen-based militia. Administration officials said the designation is aimed at deterring the Houthis from their ongoing aggression in the Red Sea. It's the latest in a series of U.S. actions targeting the Iranian-backed group and comes as the specter of a wider regional war in the Middle East looms large. The administration removed the Houthis' SDGT designation and delisted it as a foreign terrorist organization in February 2021, after it was designated by the Trump administration in its final weeks. At the time, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the decision to remove the group's designations was driven by concern that it could imperil the ability to deliver crucial assistance to the people of Yemen. That was from CNN. The White House National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby answered reporters' questions about this at today's White House briefing. The United States today designated the Houthis as a specially designated global terrorist group. We took this action because of their continued reckless and indiscriminate attacks on ships transiting the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. These attacks are a clear example of terrorism, violation of international law, and a major threat to innocent lives and to global commerce. Now, just a couple of points. First, today's designation targets the Houthis, not the Yemeni people. The United States remains the world's leading donor of humanitarian assistance for Yemen. We recognize that more than 15 million people in Yemen are still in desperate need of food, water, medicine. 
and we are taking a range of steps to ensure that these sanctions preserve the ability of aid organizations to be able to deliver all those much needed supplies. Second, this designation takes effect 30 days from now. And the reason for that is it'll give us time to work closely with those aid organizations to make sure that they understand all the ramifications of this designation, answer all their questions, and be able to provide enough context for them to have a measure of assurance as they continue to provide that humanitarian assistance. Now, look, if the Houthis cease the attacks, we can certainly reconsider this designation. If they don't, as the president said, we will not hesitate to take further actions to protect our people and the free flow of international commerce. Matt? Thanks. Uh, John, can you tell us a little bit about why the president decided not to redesignate the Houthis as a foreign terrorist organization, which obviously would have restricted some of that aid? Is it purely because of that humanitarian assistance piece? Yeah, you sort of answered the question. Uh, uh, this particular designation gives us it actually gives us more flexibility, but it also gives aid organizations uh, a higher level of comfort uh, that they'll be able to um, provide this assistance without running afoul of, uh, of sanctions. Uh, it, it, we've already, in, in, in designating them, uh, already issued a number of licenses. The license, as you know, is basically like a, a waiver. It's a carve-out when you have a sanctions regime that, that allows for certain goods to continue to flow despite the sanction regime. And so, yes, that's the big reason here. John Kirby, Strategic Communications Coordinator for the White House National Security Council at today's White House briefing. Congressman Pat Fallon, Republican from Texas, posted, So we're clear. One, Trump designates Houthis as foreign terrorist organization. Two, Biden ends designation once in office. Three, Houthi attacks in Red Sea reduce shipping 50 percent. Four, Biden responds with weak Half measures designates Houthis as specially designated global terrorist equals not as harsh as FTO. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke about the war between Israel and Hamas, now over 100 days old, and what peace in the Middle East might look like after the war ends. He was at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. You now have something you didn't have before, and that is Arab countries and Muslim countries, even beyond the region, that are prepared to have a relationship with Israel in terms of its integration, its normalization, its security, that they were never prepared to have before. And to do things, to give the necessary assurances, to make the necessary commitments and guarantees so that Israel is not only integrated, but it can feel secure. Um, But you also have an absolute conviction by those countries, one that we share, that this has to include a pathway to a Palestinian state, uh, because you're not going to get uh, the genuine integration you need, you're not going to get the genuine security you need, absent that. Um, And of course, to that end as well, a stronger, reformed Palestinian authority that can more effectively deliver for its own people has to be part of the equation. But if you take a regional approach, and if you pursue integration, with security, with a Palestinian state, all of a sudden, you have a region that's come together uh, in ways that answer the most profound questions that Israel's tried to answer for years, and what has heretofore been its single biggest concern in terms of its security, Iran, is suddenly isolated along with its proxies, and will have to make decisions about what it wants its future to be. Uh, so this is, this is actually clear when you look at it and see it. The problem is, 
getting from here to there. And of course, it requires very difficult, challenging decisions. It requires a mindset that's open to that perspective. Uh, but the, the, the choice is there. And ultimately, this is about choices. Um, what kind of society do we want to live in? What kind of world do we want to live in? What kind of region do we want to live in? Secretary of State Antony Blinken at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. The Times of Israel reports that of the 240 people seized as hostages by Hamas in their October 7th attack, 132 are thought to be still held in Gaza, not all of them alive. In Washington, D.C., Democratic and Republican senators met with American and Israeli families of some of those hostages. Senator Jim Risch of Idaho is the ranking Republican on the Foreign Relations Committee. I think by now this is obvious and uh, but repeat saying, and that is that this is not a partisan issue. This is not a partisan issue. It's been over 100 days since Hamas committed uh, a brutal terrorist uh, attack that killed over 1,200 people and took 240 Israelis and a dozen Americans hostage. This attack was premeditated, brutal, and horrific, and will live in memory. No facts and no rhetoric can justify or forgive what are clearly subhuman acts. We have not forgotten the hostages and the families. We are working every minute of every day, as those uh, who have spoken here previously have indicated, to ensure a safe return of all 136 remaining hostages, including the six Americans. This cannot end and can only come to conclusion when all the hostages have been freed and Hamas has been totally defeated and surrenders unconditionally. Anything else? perpetuates Israel's and the region's and the world's insecurity. Others in the region, specifically the Qataris, have an obligation to help. They uh, help shape opinion on the Arab street and host Hamas uh, in Doha. They are in a unique position uh, to help secure the release of all hostages. I urge them uh, to do so and to use their uh, position to do so. Our message to the Israeli people remains clear. We stand with you, and we will do all that we can to ensure you can rebuild, defend your land and people, and ensure that Hamas or any other Iranian proxy can never do this again. Thank you. Senator Jim Risch, Republican from Idaho, ranking member on the Foreign Relations Committee at a news conference on Capitol Hill with other senators of both parties and with American and Israeli families of hostages kidnapped by Hamas. And over on the House side, they are holding a bipartisan candlelight vigil on the steps of the U.S. Capitol. This is Washington Today. An update from the Pentagon on the health of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, who was released Monday from Walter Reed National Military Medical Center and is recovering from home. A story in the Washington Post reads that Secretary Austin's hospitalization and the secrecy surrounding it have garnered significant international interest. The situation was not disclosed publicly for four days and sparked controversy once it was revealed that the United States' top defense official had undergone two hospitalizations and surgery after a prostate cancer diagnosis but had not notified the White House or Pentagon staff. That was from the Washington Post. Here is the Pentagon Press Secretary Pat Ryder at today's news conference. Uh, as you are aware, Secretary Austin was released from Walter Reed National Military Medical Center Monday and on the advice of his doctors will perform his duties from home for a period of time while he recuperates. As our press release highlighted, the secretary has full access to required secure communications capabilities in his home. 
I don't have a date yet to provide in terms of when he'll return to work in the Pentagon, but we'll be sure to keep you updated. The press release, which includes a statement from Secretary Austin's doctors, as well as a statement from Secretary Austin regarding his release from the hospital, are both available on the DOD website. However, to ensure a common understanding of the Secretary's condition, prognosis, and treatment going forward, I'm going to read the statement from his doctors, and I appreciate your patience. This is from Dr. John Maddox, Trauma Medical Director, and Dr. Gregory Chestnut, Director of the Center for Prostate Disease Research at the Mirtha Cancer Center, Cancer Center of Walter Reed National Military Medical Center. Quote, Secretary Austin progressed well throughout his stay, and his strength is rebounding. He underwent a series of medical tests and evaluations and received non-surgical care during his stay to address his medical needs to include resolving some lingering leg pains. He was discharged home with planned physical therapy and regular follow-up. The secretary is expected to make a full recovery. Secretary Austin's prostate cancer was treated early and effectively, and his prognosis is excellent. He has no planned further treatment for his cancer, other than regular prostatectomy surveillance, end quote. And again, as we receive pertinent updates, we'll be sure to pass them along. The Pentagon Press Secretary, Pat Ryder, also an Air Force Brigadier General at his Pentagon News Conference today. John Kerry is a U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, and he confirmed today that he will be leaving that position in the Biden administration, but not to officially join President Biden's re-election campaign, as was reported last week by many news outlets. John Kerry was interviewed today by Bloomberg Television at the World Economic Forum in Switzerland. Let's end on President Biden. There's reporting that you're stepping down to actually go work for the campaign to get out the climate vote, the youth vote. How successful do you think you can be in that position when the youth think that this is a president that is too old and too out of touch to lead them, especially also when it comes to a foreign policy issue like Gaza? Very fair. and It's a great question. Um, But let me begin it by saying I'm not stepping down in order to go to the campaign. Uh, I'm stepping down uh, because I think that uh, what we've done in terms of uh, Dubai uh, is so powerful in terms of encouraging this transition that it's going to open up a whole new set of uh, opportunities which are important. And, and, and in my job, I came for a year. <laughs> I've been there for three. Uh, I think it's time. I will campaign for President Biden. I will certainly because the stakes could not be higher for our country, for the world. The stakes are as high as they get and as high as I've seen in the course of my public service. So I am going to campaign very happily because I think he's done a terrific job. He's shown experience. He's kept us from, you know, having a, 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 a complete breakout of uncontrolled war in many regions. But at the same time, he stood up for American values, global values, universal values for America's obligations with respect to Ukraine, Middle East and elsewhere. John Kerry, U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate on Bloomberg Television at the World Economic Forum in Switzerland. Former President Donald Trump, a 2024 Republican presidential candidate, was back in the courtroom today in New York City at the defamation trial brought by E. Jean Carroll. CNN's Caitlin Collins posting mid-afternoon following another complaint from E. Jean Carroll's lawyer that Trump could be heard making comments during testimony, Judge Kaplan said, Mr. Trump has the right to be present here. That right can be forfeited, and it can be forfeited if he is disruptive, which what has been reported to me consists of. And if he disregards court orders, Mr. Trump, I hope I don't have to consider excluding you from the trial. I understand you're probably eager for me to do that. 
Donald Trump said, I would love it. The judge said, I know you would. You just can't control yourself in this circumstance, apparently. That post from CNN's Caitlin Collins. And this story from USA Today, a former Internal Revenue Service contractor who leaked tax information about Donald Trump and other wealthy individuals to news organizations got his job to intentionally spread the confidential records, according to Justice Department prosecutors. Charles Edward Littlejohn of Washington pleaded guilty in October to unauthorized disclosure of tax returns and return information. Prosecutors recommended Tuesday he received the maximum sentence of five years in prison. That from USA Today. Thanks for listening to Washington Today. Sign up for C-SPAN's evening newsletter word for word and get the stories making headlines emailed to you every day. It's free. Subscribe at cspan.org slash connect. Have a good night.